So today I'm going to talk about how important it is that we consider what words we're using when interacting with patients, particularly those who have high catastrophization or anxiety conditions or those who just seem to be really nervous about their pain and they don't understand, because that can have a tremendous impact on outcomes. And I think it's very important that everybody across disciplines uses similar terminology and what we may be comfortable with as clinicians because of our technical training actually might have some harmful effects on the patients we see, um, simply because our knowledge base is different and the way we were oriented to the terms we use was in a very non-threatening way, and that's not often the way it's perceived by patients. So I don't have any financial um, conflicts to disclose, but, but I do want to let you know that I am an employee of the Veterans Health Administration, and nothing I say here will officially represent anything that the Department of uh, Veterans Affairs you know, would, would consider um, official. Uh, and the last bit that I, it's not really a disclosure, but I just want to let you all know that healthcare is going in a different direction, especially in pain care. And for us to be successful in turning this ship we're on, even a few degrees, uh, I think we all have to support each other. And I love that this conference is the largest interdisciplinary pain care conference because without your team members, we can't do a good job. And when it comes to language in our interactions with patients, if we're all using similar words again, I think we're going to have more success. So don't be scared. We're in it together. So I'm going to briefly review some of the research out there about how our language can impact clinical outcomes. Um, we've spoken so much about um, biopsychosocial models of pain and actually physiological effects of, of the thoughts that we have. Uh, and so it's unequivocal at this point. We understand that thoughts are nerve impulses too when they affect our biology. And it's not just the thoughts of our patients, it's our own thoughts and beliefs as clinicians. So I will cover some of the research behind this and I'm gonna give you some practical ways of thinking differently, by Dr. Chapman, practical ways of thinking differently about um, your interactions with your patients clinically. And it doesn't matter whether you're a pharmacist or a nurse practitioner or a physiatrist or you know, in the fitness industry, the way we talk about anatomy and our bodies can have a lasting impact on how our patients do and how they feel moving inside those bodies. So I wanna uh, just mention that when I think about cases I see every single day, it occurred to me this morning that they all tend to have sort of what I might call a Vivian complex from Pretty Woman. You seen that movie, right? Vivian, Julia Roberts' character. There was a scene early on when she and, and Edward were getting to know each other and she said, pretty profoundly, if someone tells you you're bad enough times, you start to believe it. So as a physical therapist working in a tertiary care center, I see all the folks who have gone through our healthcare system and, and been treated by a number of different clinicians. And when I ask them, what do you think is making your pain continue for so long? Time and time again, I get the structural problems. That's their answer. I have an L5 this, I have a, a cervical that, I have a tear here or there. And, and that's what they've been told. So either by the internet or by, by clinicians. And we'll talk a little later about how your input matters more than any other source. So briefly, I wanna cover this. If anyone was in my talk about the neuroscience of pain, this is a really interesting study. It's 30 years old, 30 plus. The setup was a group of dental surgeons who were doing a procedure on patients and then the patients were provided with a pain stimulus or a noxious stimulus. Uh, at intervals of 10 minutes post-procedure and at 60 minutes post-procedure and asked to rate their pain. And what's curious about this is the patients were told you have one of three conditions that might happen. We're gonna give you a medication that'll either um, provide some anesthesia or make the pain less 
or we'll give you one that will have no effect, or we'll give you one that might make more pain for you. Okay? And the dentists were told something different. They were told that you have two possible conditions. You either have a group that has a 100% chance of no analgesia, or you have a group that has a 50% chance of some analgesia. And what really matters here is that the factor that determined outcomes was what the clinicians thought might be happening. So it's really impossible to see this, but the group up here, this is the pain scale. The top of the scale is here, the bottom of the scale down there. So the group where the clinicians thought that the patients they were treating had a 50% chance of chemical analgesic, they had much less pain. If anyone attended Heather Tick's talk earlier in the week, she spoke a lot about how she encourages her patients to think about everything they do to affect their pain. Everything they eat, drink, think, feel, and do will affect their pain. And I would say, based on this in particular, that everything you do and think can affect your patient's pain. So let's be careful about what we say. So here are some highlighted studies that I just pulled out for you. There are more than this. Most of these on the slide are qualitative research studies. Uh, one in particular, Benendetti is a pretty popular name. You know how much research he's done on the placebo effect. And this one I've pulled out also talks about the nocebo effect. So the release of, endogen release of uh, endogenous opioids and dopamines based on just words. It's measurable. Um, and number two up there, patient-provider mismatch. This I thought was really curious, especially with how much talk we've all done about biomedical models still being quite heavily utilized, even if we all kind of know that it's outdated. But in this, the mismatch that the researchers were finding, one of the strongest mismatches was actually that the doctors were perceiving their patient cases as having more psychosocial impacts, whereas the patients were all seeing the biomedical stuff. So we need to start turning the tide here and using language that's consistent so that from the inception of that person's care through our healthcare system, they start hearing different things about their health and the potential for improvement. So that brings me to the next one, number three. Sloan and Walsh actually um, noted that people who describe their own conditions and the reasons for their pain as having a degenerative quality, those folks had a, a worse prognosis. They thought they were going to do worse than others. The enduring impact of what clinicians say, number four. Um, this one is where uh, Darlow and his colleagues really sort of flussed out that patients consult a lot of people. We all talk to our friends, we all talk to our families, trying to understand what's going on when we don't feel well. And what clinicians say outweighs every other resource, including the internet. Okay, so I know Dr. Google can give you a lot of misinformation, but it's what you all say in your face-to-face -face interactions that has much more of a lasting impact than any other resource. The other dollar study, I'm going to highlight a few things about that a bit later. And then the bottom two, these are great to just look at uh, with a little more time. The point here is the research groups in these two studies looked at effects if you change the language in a radiology report. Using demographic data, things like this is a normal amount of degeneration we would see in a group in this age range, So, for example. So you can pick up some nice alternative phrasing if you're someone who spends some time in your clinical interactions explaining radiology um, scans to your, to your patients. So now let's think about what we all, sorry about that animation, some of the slide conversions didn't really work very well. 
what we all say on a day-to-day -day basis, at least in my world. I'm a physical therapist. I do a lot with the body. And plenty of people come to me thinking that all this, oop, all this stuff here is what really matters, right? So these are terms we use all the time. It's easy to think that they're harmless, but I encourage you to think that they might not be. So here's another qualitative study from 2009 where people were asked directly, given a list of terminology, and asked to just free form, what do you think it means? If you're not a clinician who asks your patients, do you know what chronic pain is? You might be surprised to find out that a lot of people don't. They don't know what chronic means. We already covered how wear and tear these degenerative terms can make people feel they have a much poorer prognosis. Instability I talked about on Tuesday, that can have a really lasting impact on people's image of their body and their feeling of safety inside their body. And some people think chronic means it's a death sentence, right? They don't, or chronic to them means I have pain every moment. When they mean constant, they say chronic, even though we know chronic pain can be episodic too. But you just can't presume to know what somebody across from you understands, so I, I think it's worthwhile checking in with them. So this is a direct quote of a patient I worked with this year. He had been seen by a number of physical therapists in the past, and I was working with him in the context of an intensive rehab program. And I do some movement with these people, and we do some very explorative, slow, uh, you know, safe movements, but he did not raise his arms. He would not raise his arms above here. And radio radiological studies hadn't really shown anything other than age-related changes. He was in his mid-50s. But when I asked him why he didn't raise his arms, was there a problem, was there an issue? We do a very thorough exam, a team evaluation before getting these patients into this program. This is what he said. It's really hard to undo those beliefs. I tried very hard with him, and in the end, it just uh, it didn't work. He left the program, sadly. And if there's time at the end, I can, I can talk about a different study that kind of puts to, re to rest this idea that a grade two or grade three acromion, or you know, what we see with high-riding humeral heads on x-rays actually don't correlate to what happens in movement. So it makes sense to think that if you have some sort of osteophyte growth on the acromion head, it might impinge more when you raise your arm overhead, but that turns out not to be true. So instability, definitely not a good word. It sounds like a, a commonly used term. Um, core stabilization, core stability, the counterpart to this, really fosters a sense of mistrust of your body, and it's hard to live this way when you have pain and don't know what that pain means, so every time you move, you think something else is sliding around in there and you have to hold it still. So here's the Darlow study, some of the... Um, main highlights of this was just the sense that people had that their back was a highly vulnerable part of the body. And I think it's interesting. In our society, we all probably have had an ankle sprain. Um, many people have had broken bones. We tend to think that these things are time-limited, easy to recover from, even though we use our ankles all the time, but we don't get distressed about an ankle sprain, and yet we get highly distressed about back sprains. And in fact, people get a little upset if you call it just a sprain. And sprains can be nasty and painful, right? But people are prejudiced against their back as a society and as individuals. So I think it's important we keep this in mind and we don't want to perpetuate that, particularly in folks who we know might have catastrophic thinking patterns and catastrophization is very closely linked and predictive of chronic pain states or development of. So those of you who have the opportunity to see people who are 
um, early in a pain state. This is particularly important for you. So sorry about the typo. I've looked at these slides so many times and my brain glossed right over that. So we're not talking about loan status or computer vulnerability here. It's supposed to be an I, insecure. <laughs> Unsecure loans. Um, but these are the kinds of things that people say to me when I ask them, what do you think is causing your pain? And they tell me that they've been told that this disc of theirs is vulnerable to re-injury so they can't bend forward. And this model doesn't do anything to help. That's not what happens in our body. It is not, you're not going to pop your disc out by bending forward. Discs don't slip. They never, ever slip. But our language suggests that they could easily just float around in there and touch all this stuff that they have no business touching. So, you know, they actually do have quite a lot of business being real cozy with structures inside there. And thankfully, we have a great sensory network that tells, tells our brain when stuff is moving in there. And most of the time, it's absolutely fine. And that movement enriches a good neurofeedback uh, loop that we need. Jelly donut syndrome, right? This is what people have said that describes what they think is happening to a disc that may have been bulging on a scan in the past or they think is bulging right now and as soon as they bend over, the contents of that disc will just be spilt out into the spinal canal and cause spinal cord injury. That, these are the things that people tell me when I ask them to help me understand what's going on inside their body. So I encourage you to change the narrative. Change the narrative. You can use the same clinical assessment skills that you were trained to use. You can use the same clinical reasoning skills you were trained to use. But if you rule out the scary nasties, then I think we need to talk differently about what, what the patient should do about it, help them understand their condition a little differently. So impingement, okay? Every, every physical therapist here knows that in order to help chronic tendon irritation conditions, eccentric training is the way to go. What is eccentric training? It's lengthening the tendon as it's working and it is a higher force production output than concentric training, right? So that means the tendon is getting squished and squeezed and pulled through their tendinous grooves and they in fact respond positively to that. They love it, right? And pinching can be really good for blood flow. At least my husband tries to convince me of that. <laughs> oh, did you want to see that again? Yeah, right there. <laughs> so, change the narrative with degenerative joint disease. So many people I work with in the veteran population were highly active individuals, and it's detrimental to their quality of life and their identity to not be able to exercise. And if we think that degeneration is something pathological instead of something naturally occurring, it's a problem. We think then load is worse and causes more wear and tear, and it does cause more changes, trophic changes, but that doesn't mean that it's dangerous, and it doesn't mean that it, it will impact the spine's ability to move or the knee's ability to move, as long as we do so slowly and allow the tissues adequate time to adapt. So something called the SED principle, or specific adaptation to impose demand. Specific adaptation to impose demand just means you do something at small enough integrals and increase the challenge, the body will adapt. Every part of us will adapt to that. Okay? Even this one missing a leg. She's doing fine. We use this phrase all the time. Motion is lotion. Motion is lotion. It distributes synovial fluid. It helps clear out some of that other unhelpful fluid, so pro-inflammatory cytokines, right? So movement is imperative to health and recovery of health. 
And if we're fearful of moving, that's not going to do us any good. So another thing that's pretty common when people come in and they say, well, I, I was told I have stenosis. What is stenosis, right? What is stenosis? It's a narrowing of the spinal canal and perhaps the spinal foraminal openings where the nerve roots exit the spinal cord. And it's more common than you think, and radiographic studies, prospective studies that say, I want you uh, to try to predict who's going to have more pain. And so they get rated on mild, moderate, or severe stenosis, and it turns out it's not very predictive. The severe stenosis people don't necessarily have the most pain. But that's not what people think when they walk away and they look at stenosis online and they see these scary red squash nerves. It's really unhelpful. So this is what I do a lot in my clinic. I explain stenosis to patients in this way and hope you can maybe try it yourself. I say, okay, so say your family wants to downsize because many reasons, financial, uh, location, desirable, city living, whatever it is. If you take that family and you downsize, uh, they had a four-bedroom house and then they had a three-bedroom house and they work their way because they got to peel off some of the belongings they have. And, but this is a long-term thinking plan, right? And then you move that family of five into one of these tiny houses. The tiny houses are all real popular, right? Well, inevitably, someone's not going to be very happy about that, but mostly things do fine. And living in that tiny house is not a problem. But then, you know, it happens slowly. Everyone adjusts. Nerves can get cranky in smaller spaces. It doesn't mean the smaller space is the problem. Maybe they're not moving. Maybe they have some, um, some acid-sensing channels that are more active because of their lifestyle habits or their choices there. But what if the in-laws come to visit? Now it's a problem, right? In-laws here would be uh, inflammatory cytokines or extra load from tensing the, the trunk muscles or stress hormones. So if somebody comes to my clinic and they're scared, I, ha I actually counsel people a lot on their fear around receiving joint injections in the procedure clinic that happens next door, and they don't understand that. You know, If you're a physician and you say, the reason for your pain, sir, is because you have arthritis in your back and we're going to do this injection, then it, that should help. Well, that person walks away thinking, well, okay, but does that change my arthritis? No. So will I always have pain then because of the arthritis? Well, we know that pain and arthritis don't correlate at all in any predictive way, at least. So I say, so now your nerves are in a smaller house, they're in a tiny house, and they were happy on their own, but now these other visitors came and they're not going away. So that injection can help to clear out the in-laws. <laughs> we don't have to get you a new house. <laughs> lotion is lotion. So immediately after they're having some dampening effect of those nociceptors from an injection, that's the time to target movement and get those nerves moving, because we know that neural tensioning, sliding and gliding, is really, really healthy. Nerves love it. They love blood space and movement, and they need a lot of it. So I come from San Francisco. Riceroni is, in fact, not the San Francisco treat. Here we have creamy clam chowder served in a bread bowl. So if I'm talking to somebody about a peripheral joint that's really angry, crabby, swollen, visibly so, and by the way, many of the folks I see do not have hot, acutely swollen joints. This is neurogenic inflammation or general low-grade inflammation that finds its way to the joint that our brain is protecting so much. And this is the kind of language I use with patients. So I say, okay, now these are the folks who actually don't have good health literacy, um, who don't understand how they get a shocking pain when they stand up from a chair. So inflammatory um, uh, soup is a, is a term that I use a lot. I say, okay, so you're going to make some soup, right? Your, your knee is the, now the pot of soup. And if you have a pot of creamy soup on the stovetop, how does that like to be treated? 
If you walk away when it's on a little higher temperature, what's going to happen? It burns, it scorches, right. And if you sit there and vigorously whip it up, you're going to soon have butter, right? So too much activity, too little activity, not the sweet spot. But gentle mid-grade movement for an inflamed joint is awesome. You just stir that soup, stir the soup, keep it moving. So I train patients if they're sitting and they're in a graded program and they're not ready to go back to high intense exercise, but they can sit there and just move their knee around or swirl their ankle around or do something with that elbow that's unhappy. You're stirring the soup and you're clearing things out bit by bit. Can't help it. Motion is lotion. <laughs> so how about those folks who don't trust their body because of instability, the I word, right? As long as you've ruled out some really potentially bad arthritis, I'm um, sorry, um, uh, kinematic problem, like they might, they might have a true instability, which in the shoulder might be an anterior capsule that's just not... Um, genetically formed right. This, this problem exists, and I have seen patients who needed to have a special surgery to have that repaired, but most of those wobbly joints are just that. They're just, it's a proprioceptive issue, it's a low-grade inflammation issue, interrupting those proprioceptive networks that don't give the good feedback to the brain and a good sense of where you are. And we know that cortical changes in the brain also will rearrange your sense of self and where you, where you are in the world, how you sit, where you stand, and whether you can find your left foot. Right? So I talk about things, what else in life might be wobbly and still capable of learning how to move with good control? Right? This guy doesn't come out knowing everything. <laughs> right? So wobbly joints definitely can learn to be strong. And we might need to start with isometrics, we might need to start with imagined movement, but we start somewhere and those wobbly joints can get better. T telling a person your back is safe to move is very important medicine. Instead of you need this core stabilization because you have back pain, people think, well, am I unstable? Is that why I have back pain? Or sometimes it's directly said. So your back is safe to move. You might have to go slow, start real low, but definitely stay curious because that alarm system is miscalibrated and it needs to be retrained. Right? And fussy joints, fussy and wobbly joints, I use those terms a lot. You know, I don't say your inflamed, unstable shoulder. I say, well, your shoulder's a little fussy right now, pretty crabby, but we can help teach it to feel better and do better. So those discs, right? Intervertebral discs are not slippy, slidey things in there. They are wonderfully adaptive force transducers. They're not Oreo cookies that have been sat out, sitting out in the sun and everything's gonna slide around as soon as you touch it, right? So this quote is not mine, this term is not mine, it comes from explained pain, but our living adaptable force transducers love movement. They love to adapt, they love to change. And just like this tree, if you have a picture of one that doesn't look like the others, it doesn't mean it's unhealthy, necessarily. So you have a slide in your deck that can help uh, remind you of some of these terms. And I wanna just challenge you all to see how, how long you can go in a week without falling back on those old terms. See how embedded those are in the way that we talk with our patients and how we explain their condition or their pain problem and how they're going to get out of it. So I, I know, we can do it. We can do it. <laughs> Thank you very much for coming. There's a little time for questions. <laughs>